This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music on our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. Well, that escape was messy. At least we blew up that part of the Max Roy chemical factory that was spewing out the toxic fumes into the neighborhood. That's one more of Chairman Max Roy's schemes down the tube. Hey, we made it away with the sweet grab truck. Mission done, some sweet gear. Time for some well-deserved rest. Uh, yeah, excellent. Good job, guys. Fun session. Uh, you each get 20 XP. Cool. I'm going to raise my demolition skill. I think I'm going to work on raising my agility. Awesome. Cool. Uh, while you guys do that, uh, I'm just going to do like a quick, like little, um, like solo vignette thing for you guys. Um, so, you know, go ahead and fix your sheets while, while I do this. Um, so uh, while you guys are training, like, you know, getting your, you know, getting your skill points in, getting your numbers up, um, we switch over to the office of uh, Denthar Maxroy. The camera swings round and we see her sitting behind her massive desk, staring at a suspended hollow screen. Hollow screen shows the burning remains of the factory as the two of you speed away on the grav truck. Denthar looks up to face her four remaining lieutenants. And one of them raises their voice. Sorry about the factory. Thought we had those two trapped. Denthar waves her hand dismissively. Don't worry about it. I mean, it's a loss, but in the end, it needed to be removed. Time to move on to phase three. But before we do that, she points at the grav truck. I need those two eliminated. Well, crap. Oh, apparently now they know who our characters are. So with that, welcome to the 469th episode of the Mr. Mark podcast. Tonight, we discuss GM secrets and some ways to use and reveal them in your tabletop role-playing games. Along the way, we'll take your comments, examples, and suggestions live from the chat room for life on Twitch before we jump into the after show. But first, my name is Jerry. My name is Phil. And I am Old Man Logan. Welcome back to the show. Good evening, and let's do our uh, temperature check, see how everybody's feeling. Phil, how you doing? I am, uh, you know what, I'm doing good. I am uh, feeling good mentally, and uh, I am feeling pretty good physically, actually. Which is good, because I have a physical tomorrow, and so, you know, positive you <laughs> uh, positive attitude, as as they say. Anyway... Um, that's me. Jer, how about you? Good. Um, you know, the weather's changing, so I always get a little verklempt and sneezy and that. But aside from that, I'm doing pretty good. Been a little tired the last couple of days, so I've been going to bed a little bit earlier and getting some de- well-deserved sleep. Um, so on that, I'm feeling pretty good and ready to roll on with the week. How about you, Bob? Or Phil? We just did Bob. Phil? No, you had it right. Uh, oh. Mentally feeling pretty good. Um, physically, um, still working through stuff with my massage therapist. My chiropractor's done with me for a while. He said, if you feel something, then call me and come back in. But otherwise you're good. So I'm good there. But, um, the massage therapist has been working a lot of stuff in the neck and shoulder area. And my right shoulder has been for the last, like probably three, four days, really just fatigued. The whole arm is just tired. And Too much I'm master. Righty, so I'm like, you know, everything I do is with my right hand and I can't rest it, but I have to rest it. So there's, there's a challenge before me, but besides that, 
everything else about me, I'm physically good to go. So, um, you know, I'll have to deal with that in its own time. Let's do the thing. I don't think we have any announcements, right? Uh, you know what? Informally, I don't have anything prepped for this, but I believe that Evil Hat's um, new crowdfunding for their improv book is out. Terrible that we don't have this um, put together. I'll, um, I'll along the way try to scrounge up the link and stuff like that. Maybe we'll do it at uh, mid-break. Um, but we should definitely give a shout out um, to those guys. All right. That being said, then I'm going to fire up this bumper. Phil, you get started because the bumper's already, uh, you're already always a little bit behind the bumper. So go. Workshop, workshop. We're talking about GM secrets tonight. We're going to talk about how to do them right. How to not screw over your players, even though you have all the power and knowledge. Where? We're going to talk about it here. Where? In the workshop. Oh, and don't suck. There we go. Tonight, we're going to continue our discussion of secrets, and this time we're going to be focusing on GM secrets. Just as a quick recap, with our last week's podcast, we talked about player and character secrets, the pros and cons of each, and our preferences for character secrets and character secrets. But tonight, we're going to jump over to the other side of the screen and look at the secrets that GM keeps, how they differ, and tips to make these work at the table for you. All right, and of course, in order to do that, Phil's got to give us some definitions, so let me do this. Behold, you are in the presence of Definition Panda. Hola. Okay. Um, let's let's start off with the term that we defined last week, but we'll define it again here, which is secret, uh, not known or seen, or not meant to be known or seen by others, um, not meant to be known as such by others. Right? Pretty uh, pretty straightforward. We know what secrets mean talked a lot about it last week um when it comes to the gm though it gets a bit tricky uh by the very nature of how the gm role works the gm knows way more things than the players and their characters do but not all of what they know is truly what we would be we would consider secrets especially for tonight so we're going to define two terms to kind of split apart what the gm knows so the first one's going to be gm knowledge and that is information that is known by the GM and unknown and potentially unknown to the players where the GM is not actively concealing or deceiving the characters. For example, um, your characters are on level one of a dungeon and the GM happens to know what's on level four of the dungeon. But as the players get to level four, they'll get that knowledge as they explore the dungeon. So it's not being concealed. For, it's not actively being concealed or deceived. It's just not known to them until they come across it. Exactly. And I think that and, and that's going to knock out a huge chunk of things that GMs know, right, that players don't know. Those are we're not going to consider those secrets. That's just knowledge. OK, mm -hmm. so what is a GM secret? We're going to define that as information that is known by the GM and unknown to one or more of the players and or their characters. We'll break that apart in a second and is actively being concealed or obscured by deception. For example, Baron Vodrow denies his involvement in the ambush at the solar police ship when in actuality, Baron Vodrow definitely ordered that attack himself. So the players yep. don't know that yet, but it's out there. Exactly. Okay. So with GM secrets, we can also delineate based on whom the information is actively being kept from, which means that we can have player GM secrets 
where the information is being kept from the player or players and in turn from their characters. For example, the players have no idea who ordered the ambush on the Solar Police ship and neither do the characters. Mm-hmm. It's fair. Uh, and then there are GM character secrets where the information is being kept from just the characters and the players are actually aware of the information. For example, at the end of the previous session, the GM performed a scene without any of the player characters in it where Baron Vaudreau says, this will show them. Execute. And in the next session, the poor sword police ship is attacked, but none of the characters know who is behind it. There we go. All right. So even though tonight's show is about secrets, before we get too far into it, Jerry, what can we say about GM knowledge? All right. In the majority of the games we play today, the GM always knows more than the players. In fact, it's almost always a necessity for the GM to keep some secrets from the players just to keep the game fun. Oh, I got to correct that. Can't say some secrets. That was my fault. Okay. Keep some knowledge. Knowledge. Uh, that's actually not your fault. I put that sentence in there. Oh, so okay. That was, that was my but, edit. That's okay. Yeah, we can't, be, from, we can't be casual with the word secret right now. All right. But this comes from a number of things, including the GM sections of the game, the setting material, and some of the session notes, whether they're published or homemade. The GM's job is to parse out that knowledge out to the players as they encounter it through play. There's nothing special about this and it's not really an issue, but there are a few tips that will help your players out when you're doing this. So if a piece of knowledge is not a secret, then don't perform any deception on the players, right? The players rely on you, the GM, as the input to their senses. They trust the things you tell them to be true. And if for some reason they can't trust that, your, the progress of your game will grind to a halt. So, for example, avoid using the word appears when you're describing something, unless that something is a secret. Saying something like, it appears to be a wooden door, is going to make the character stop and expect every, inspect every aspect of that door for 15 minutes before they even touch it. Now, you can occasionally throw a fake one of these in there for raising tension, but in that case, what you're actually doing is a secret. So, using your... Uh, vocabulary carefully when describing things to players makes a big difference. Absolutely. Yeah, I have a bad habit of using the word appears, and it's like I should only use it when it really just appears to be something, right? Like, mm-hmm. like even I, and I don't even care if I subtly tip that off to the to the players, but it's a bad habit when you say things like, "Well, he appears to be excited." Well, now is he lying? Like, you know you create a lot of confusion with that. And if you're trying to move your game along, like for instance, the, uh, you know, the, you ask the, you ask the shopkeeper, you know, is the sword any good? And he says, yes, he appears to be enthusiastic about it. Like now we've, now we've just got a whole mess of a scene here where the players are like, "Ah, is he lying to us? Is he trying to sell us bad gear? You know, what other checks can I do to look, look at the metallurgy of the sword? Like it's too much. It's too much. it's also tonal, you know, when somebody says something like, you know, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, reach for the glass. Do you grab the glass with your bare hands? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and all of a sudden the players get paranoid and, and I've gamed with GMs who do that kind of stuff and it makes the players overly paranoid. It makes the players overly cautious, grinds the game to a halt. Yes. Um, and then the problem is when you do that so often, the players stop looking for clues because they feel that everything the GM's doing is just a red herring. 
Right. And then the GM can get frustrated because they're like, well, you didn't pick up on that clue. Well, we didn't think it was a clue because everything else you've told us has been a lie. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, there, there is an art. If you are running a horror game, mm-hmm. um, there is an art for how to, uh, like we said, like Jerry was saying, how to mess with this a little to mm-hmm. to kind of make it spooky. But again, it's like seasoning, right? You can't just use all of it. You got to throw it in every now and then to kind of, you know, shake up the status quo kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. All right. So with all that out of the way, Phil, let's talk more about GM secrets and why GMs would want to have them. Mm-hmm. Last week when we talked about player and character secrets, um, we talked about them being about drama and advantage, either narrative or mechanical advantage. And the same thing is actually true for GM um, secrets. GM secrets can create both um, drama and or mechanical or narrative advantages. But the other thing that GM secrets can do is also create excitement. For example, if a character retires to his room at the inn, and unbeknownst to them, there's an invisible assassin in his room, the player fails any text to detect the invisible attacker and is stabbed. So suddenly this scene is about retiring from bed has become much more exciting as the character is now fighting for their life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, last week we said that player and character secrets um, really shine at the moment of revelation, right? The, the revelation of secrets creates those dr- dramatic moments and those advantages. For GM secrets, though, and I think some people will disagree, but I'm going to stick with this. For GM secrets, though, I think it's a little different. While revelation is still important, what winds up being more important is if the players or characters can figure it out in the nick of time. And we're going to use nick of time as a, a very specific phrase, right? By discovering something in the nick of time, we reinforce that the characters are the protagonists and focus of the game. So, Jerry, give us two yep. examples. All right. The first one. Bob's character enters the room at the inn, removes their sword, starts taking off their armor when they're suddenly stabbed from behind and incapacitated. It happens. It's a little bit exciting, but consider it this way. Bob's character enters the room at the inn, removes their sword and starts taking off their armor when they smell the faint scent of cherry blossoms, a scent that is the signature of the Red Sword Assassins. So he springs from the bed as the blade cuts his arm and he draws his sword ready for a second strike. Yeah. So the first one is, you know, pretty realistic, right? Invisible person, you know, just waiting in, you know, waiting in um, ambush. But it's not it's not really exciting. It might be a bit dramatic, although nobody's going to really know about it because Bob's character is now just incapacitated on the bed. Like nobody really knows about it. But the second one kicks off like a really intense combat scene, which could still result in Bob's character being incapacitated. But Bob's character has a fighting chance, right? Like instead of just been like, oh, you failed your, you know, perception roll, boom, you're out. You know, your character's yeah. done for tonight. Um, instead, you know, he takes a hit, you know, not, it doesn't have to be a trivial hit, but he takes a hit. Um, and now we're into this like kind of exciting combat scene. I, I personally, from a GM perspective, I think the second one's a lot more fun. Mm-hmm. I would just like to state that if you're an, an invisible assassin, that comes in with the scent of cherry blossoms, you're either a bad assassin or a really fucking bold one. I mean, you don't know if it's their first day, right? Like, I mean, maybe that's part of, maybe that's part of their honor code, you know? Yeah. Can't take off your helmet. Always got to smell like cherry blossoms. So they're like the baddest ass assassins that like, we're so good. We can let you smell us before we hit. And it ain't going to make a difference. Well, I think the idea is that like, 
I think the idea is that like you smell the faint smell of cherry blossoms and you're like, oh shit, and then you're dead. Right. Yeah. But you're a hero. So like yeah. you smell the faint smell of cherry blossoms and you, you know, whirl around with your blade, you know, just deflecting, you know, this killer shot into like, you know, into your arm rather than, you know, being run through. That's the difference. Like, ah, you fool. You brought a dagger to a sword fight. Anyway, go ahead. Oh, my God. The cherry I mean, you think, yes. oh, shit, I'm having a stroke. Oh, wait, that's toast. That's bacon. <laughs> bacon, toast, whatever. All right. Mm-hmm. Jerry, I feel like there's a lot in that last example that informs us on how to do GM secrets well. Let's let's unpack that a little bit. All right. So when it comes to GM secrets, the GM can make anything a secret as they want, as long as they want, by deciding what the characters can sense. They have control over that. They can determine the difficulty of the role to find out, and even when to call for those roles. On top of that, the GM also can determine the outcome of figuring out that secret or the outcome of not figuring it out. So because the GM has suspense power, it's important that the secrets are able to be figured out by the players. Otherwise, it just looks like the GM is doing things by fiat, which ends up feeling kind of shitty. So here are some tips for making good GM secrets. Yeah. Um, first of all, consent and boundaries, right? While it's assumed in most games the GM is going to have secrets, um, it's not going to hurt you to take time to do the safety work um, and talk about them. Um, all the things that we talked about last week about boundaries and what kinds of secrets and things like that, all that same advice carries here. Um, in fact, as you're doing it to talk about whether players can have secrets, you can easily just, you know, as the GM be like, cool, my secrets, what about my boundaries? Um, and just get those in as well. Yep. And it's important to talk about some of those because um, one of the tools we're going to talk about a little later on is the off-camera reveal. And there are some players who feel that that takes them out of the game. And they don't want to have those sorts of things happen. Hmm? They'd rather discover things as they come. They don't want to have the uh, a clue as to what the villain's up to. Um, I've played in some games with players that are like that. That every time the GM does an off-camera reveal, they kind of roll their eyes and sit back like, oh. Um, and that could be for a number of reasons. But it's still good to talk about that and bring that out too. Because the players might not like it or they might really encourage the GM. Yeah, we'd love to see more of that. And that ends up being a love letter to your GM, which is always good. So next you want to give an appropriate amount of clues and an appropriate amount of opportunities for the players to figure this out. And there's no hard and fast rule on this, but basically, as a, as a kind of rule of thumb, the bigger or longer the secret, the more clues or chances that the players should have to figure out what, the, what that secret is. So, like, determining if a door is trapped in a dungeon, that's like one check. Determining if your patron, who you've been friends with for the whole campaign, is actually a double agent, that should show up multiple times. So does this mean that sometimes a clue or a secret that you tend to have at the end of the game gets found out sooner? Yeah, but that's a risk. And you want to be sure to plan your story so this becomes less of a risk or plan your story so that you take that uh, contingency into effect and decide what to do if the players figure it out early. Um, And that's important because sometimes players make make leaps of logic that you have no clue on as a GM. And all of a sudden, Adventure 2 they all figure out, oh, this is the bad guy. Yeah. And they don't trust them for the rest of the adventure. And now you need to decide what you're going to do about that. So plan for that. Yeah. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, yep. Here's another tip. Use language to create suspicion, even if the players fail the role. Right? In the narrative, you can, through word choice, create suspicion even when characters fail. As the GM, you are the character's input of their senses. You can tell them that something doesn't feel right um, or that they're developing a hunch, right? 
For example, you stare at Baron Vaudreau in the eyes as he calmly tells you that he has nothing to do with the ambush. But your gut says otherwise, even though you have no proof. Like, you can legit do that. Yep. The thing you can't do, and I want to be very clear, because Jerry has, Jerry has strong feelings about this, and I echo these strong feelings, is that you can't set the character's emotional state. Like, you can't say, like, oh, you totally trust him. You can say things like, you have a hunch, even though you have no proof. It just, something doesn't feel right about this guy. Like, you can say that. In fact, it, it's, it's, it's helpful to say that because what you're, what you're doing is we often as GMs talk about like our known senses, right? Like, you know, things like um, sight, taste, sound, touch, hearing. Yeah, I said sound already. Anyway, but you can also convey other, um, you can also convey other senses. And one of those is instinct. Like you can just say to like the player, like he sits there smugly looking at you saying he had nothing to do with it, but on the inside, you are sure he had something to do with this. Even say something on the lines of, you know, he says he has nothing to do with it. And while he sounds believable, you remember that's the same look on his face when he lied to his other people to protect you. Right. Yes. You know? um, and leave it at that. He could be, he could be lying, could have, but at least you've given them some clue that something is, is not right to keep them on the trail that you want them to be on. You're giving them some, some tasty breadcrumbs there. So. Yeah. I mean, at this point, you know, they have no evidence, so they can't really do anything about it, but mm-hmm. you've given them enough of a suspicion that they're going to want to go find some evidence and that will move your game forward. Yep. Now, the next thing you want to do is don't crush them if they fail to notice, if they fail to make those yes. dice rolls, or even worse, if they fail to put together the narrative pieces that you've laid out for them. If they must miss multiple chances to find the secret and are unable to avoid it, that's when you reveal the secret. You don't crush them with the consequences. Yeah, they should still suffer a setback for not figuring it out, some minor injury or something, but don't one-shot kill them, don't TPK them, don't you know fridge their, their loved ones or blow up the ship or do something like that. Don't fridge your loved ones, period. But yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, that, that's always a thing, Correct. but especially not there. Right. Uh, now, there's a caveat. If your game has advanced healing or resurrection, then maybe a one-shot kill isn't the same, and they're more of a resource problem. So if you know the system you're playing and you know that if you kill somebody off, there's still a good chance they can come back into the game with a little bit of resources, then it's okay to have that secret that gets revealed do some serious damage. Um, but also you need to know your players and know how they're going to feel about that. So again, um, you need to gauge that properly and make sure that if they're failing to notice something that you give them ample opportunity to keep role-playing with it because mm-hmm. getting ambushed and wiped out one attack isn't going to be fun for anyone. Now getting ambushed, taking some heavy damage, being forced to retreat to an unknown area and, um, to kind of recover and think about what you do next, that can make things more interesting um, and creates another challenge that they can interact with instead of just knocking them down and kicking their butts. Yeah. So these are the kind of things that can help make your secrets dramatic and exciting without making them feel punitive and hopeless. Because when your players feel that they're being punished or your players feel that there's no chance of them succeeding, then they tend to give up on the game and then you get a lot of passive aggressive play coming across. And that's never fun for anybody. So I just want to say on the not crushing them, right? I don't want anyone to hyperbolically think that we mean like, oh, never hurt players. Like, no, no, no. hurt them. 
Mm-hmm. Just don't wipe them out because well, they failed. Never to hurt get a your sequel. players. You can hurt yeah. your characters. Characters <laughs> hurt the true. characters. Hurt the characters. Anyway, well, my my yeah. point my point being is my point being is yes. If they fail the six times to notice that this thing's a double cross and they walk into the double cross, yes, you you should hurt them and scuff them up a bunch. But wiping them out in like a like one round ambush. It is punitive and kind of sucks yeah. having them retreat under fire, like dragging their, you know, a couple of fallen comrades with them, trying to make their way like back to the ship or something, or just, you know, disappear into the city while search parties are out looking for them. Again, shit's exciting, right? Like yeah. that's something we can work with for a game. Mm-hmm. Plus it also puts what happens to the players. And, and this is a personal um, thing of mine. If players are going to go down, like if they're going to get taken out or something, I want it to be while they have a fighting chance. I don't want a passive trap taking out a player. I don't want um, a, an ambush just killing a player from a distance. Like if, if a player is going out in, in one of my games, they're going out swinging. Now they could just get beat. Then dice don't work for them. Mechanically, they stuck around when they should have run. Whatever. That's on them. Right, that, like that, that's why growing. I mean, and Phil, you might remember these years ago. There was a company that put out Grimtooth traps. Yeah, and Grimtooth traps mm-hmm. were amusing to read. Yes, but any G, but any GM who actually used them was just being a jerk. Grimtooth traps were basically book upon book of nearly undetectable traps that were Rube Goldberg like in their ability to kill off the players no matter yes. what they did. And the super idea fun was, to read. Super, yeah, fun, super to fun to read, but I've played with GMs who thought those were great things to put in games. And it was basically a, no matter what you do, except leave the dungeon, you're going to die. That's no fun for the players. Unless you've negotiated takes- that whole thing up front. Yep. It's no fun for the players. That's exactly it. Right. Yep. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. And you want to keep that in mind for other things in your games. If you design a situation where it relies on the players doing only one thing, or making one decision and making it right, you've got to be careful about that sort of thing. Um, because the same thing can happen. If they don't get the right clues on what to do, then you could be pun- punishing them for something that's not their fault. Mm-hmm. And that's never any fun for the players. Agreed. And hopefully yeah. it's not fun for the GM. So it's fun for the GM. There's some things we got to talk about. Yeah, that's a different, <laughs> that's a different problem. Yeah. You've, you have a whole All other right. problem going on in your game. Yep. So, Phil, before we go into the break, what kinds of info and tips do we have about player GM secrets versus character GM secrets? Yep. Okay. Last week we were pretty adamant about our dis our, our about our liking character over player secrets, right? We were very adamant about that uh, to the point of a little preachy, but I'm okay with that. When it comes to GM secrets, I don't actually think it's that polarizing, um, and I think this is because while we are all playing the game together, the GM is always separate from the players and they're not, there's not the same implied trust, right? Players do have to trust that the GM is fair, right? That, that, that is true, but they also know that the GM knows more than they do and has to have some secrets that the players don't know. So GM secrets don't generate that same, those same feelings of betrayal, that um, player secrets can. So like if your NPC turns out to be the double cross, 
you know, the NPC that you, you know, the NPC guide you just picked up turns out to be the bad guy. You're like, ah, right. Like the good, you know, the old double cross. But if it turns out to be Bob, like there's a whole different layer of yeah. betrayal, right? Yep. Um, so it's implied that GMs are going to have some secrets. So I don't think it's as shocking. Yeah. Um, and because of that lower sense of betrayal, there's room for you to do both of these secrets, character and player types. Um, which one you're going to use will have more to do with how your group sees their character and and like how they see their characters and how they interact with the story. For example, for groups that want higher immersion, that is to occupy more of the character level, player GM secrets work great. By keeping the secret from the player, that level is never engaged the way that it could be. Yeah. For groups that are more story focused and where immersion isn't crucial for play, then character secrets actually work really well. Um, they show the players things that are happening off camera and that are out of focus of the characters, but actually lets the players help um, play into those. So, um, you know, a great, a great example of this, and one of my favorites is the off camera reveal. We've already done two of them tonight in, you know, for the opening in one of the examples. Um, None of the characters are in the scene, but you as the GM act out a scene to reveal some information strictly for the players, not for the characters. Um, and now that the players are aware of the secret, um, they can likely figure out what's going to happen next. But, you know, good players just keep their characters oblivious to that. For example, um, your Hector completes their run and has all the data, but had some bad roles and missed a critical security sweep. So they log out. So we're going to cut off camera and the executive standing over another hacker who asks, do we have the location? And the evil hacker nods. And the executive takes out a photo makes a call. I have the location. Sending it to you now. Yeah, that's just fun, right? Mm -hmm. like, like, that's a great way to end a session. You know, players like leaving the table going, oh, shit. Um, anyway, you can actually mix these two, right? You don't have to do one or the other. Um, as in all things, right? There's no absolutes here. We're not Sith GMs. Um, so you can do like mostly player based secrets, but do the occasional character one for fun, like, like the end of a game, you know, that kind of, uh, that kind of, um, teaser thing. Um, or you could do mostly character ones and do the occasional player one. Like it's, it's fine. Um, it's fine to mix them up. There's, you know, you do what you do, what fits you style wise and what works for your group. This is why having that consent talk is, is really good. Because if you've hashed this out with your um, players, and like Jerry said, some some players may not want to do character secrets. They don't want to have to, you know, they don't want to, um, they don't want to, uh, they want the immersion, right? They don't want to have to, they don't want to think of this as a story. They want to think of themselves as characters. Yep. Um, other groups could be the exact opposite of that, where they're, you know, everybody playing the game is part um, part actor, part director, and really want to get into, you know, the, you know, everybody wants a hand in the story. If you've got a group like that and you have an extended reveal scene, you can even let the players jump in as some of the bystanders, you know. Oh, the, oh yeah. You know, like the, the evil executive turns to their four assassins and makes a comment. And then one of the players who's feeling, feeling their, their oats jumps up and, you know, makes some comments back as the assassin about how they're going to crush them between, the, you know, be, you know, beneath their feet. And have that fun back and forth for a second to ramp that up. And the GM takes notes. And now they've got, you know, even more hatred for the players from the bad guys and makes it even more personal for everybody. Yep. Uh, 
plus everybody likes to play the bad guy for a second or two. They don't <laughs> have to actually do bad things. So, all right. Well, that was our look at GM Secrets. And we're going to take a break in a second and check with the chat room. But first, Bob is going to tell us about another show on the Mr. and Mark Network. Yeah, buddy. So, Pandas Talking Games with new copy. Queer gamers talking about tabletop role-playing games and making outtakes. Join Pandas Phil and Senda every Monday answering listener questions about playing, running, and designing tabletop RPGs. Get cozy and let's talk about some games. Here we go. Every Monday, assuming Senda remembers to post the show. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes Monday afternoon, sometimes Tuesday, you know. Anyway, There's a little I'm bit of, uh, you know, flexibility. She's going to yell. She'll yell in a second in the chat room. Okay. So anyway. to go back to what we had started saying earlier about the uh, uh, the evil hat thing, um, second edition of Improv for Gamers. Uh, yep. It is crowdfunding um, through GameFound, not through Kickstarter. Um, so uh, they've got that up, and I'm going to pop it up on the screen here. It's at GameFound.com, and it uh, looks like they're asking for fifteen grand, and they're about a third of the way through with 30 days left. Uh, I'm sure this thing is going to fund no problem. Uh, it's popular. The first edition was a very popular book, and there's a lot of buzz about this right now, so I have no doubt that they're going to they're gonna fund no problem. I'm going to say uh, it's yeah, GameFound is the new, the new crowdfunding platform that is designed for uh, tabletop RPGs only, I believe. If uh, I'm reading what Mo was saying correctly, um, just for tabletop games, not tabletop role-playing, tabletop games in general. So board games and everything like that are included. Um, Because there's been some stuff with Kickstarter lately. and Yeah. So there's, you know, there's there's good in having multiple platforms for this kind of thing. You know, build some healthy competition and give uh, creators choices for where they want to put their projects. So GameFound.com. Improv for Gamers Second Edition from Evil Hat Productions. Um, good book. We got some roll. We got some roll twenty. Um, yeah, we got, you, we got some roll twenty assets in here as part of as yep. one of the levels. Like, if you pledge now, they have a they have some extra little freebies they're giving away to people that pledge early. Um, they're tossing it with some of their pledge levels. They're tossing in some extra freebies for people who um, pledge early. Yep. including some art packs and I think a gamer's workbook and stuff like that. So take a look at the pledge options, but there's a bunch of nice pledge options available. Yeah. So And um, our very own Queen Senda appears in the book briefly, but appears. Mm-hmm. So there you go. I'm going to say I like this. Um, this website's nice. Like the yeah. layout of it looks good. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty nice. I've got a project coming up. Uh, no, I don't have a project. There's a project coming up on GameFound that I am going to be backing for a, for a board game that uh, I'm looking forward to. So we'll see how the, the process goes in the interface and all that stuff like that. Hey, I found Cindy. She's the last, good. she's the last author on the page. Yay. And looking Yay. pretty spiffy, actually. She's looking pretty spiffy in her, uh, in her bio picture. Cool. So anyway, any questions about uh secrets so far? Um, not really. Been real hush hush over there. They've been, uh, uh, see what I did there? enraptured by our our melodious voices i'm using the big words tonight kids look out all right we um we have anything else uh no i think it's time to jump into the cool let's roll 
All right, so back into the uh, next part of GM Secrets where we hit the roundtable, starting with question number one, Phil. Tell us about a time when you had a GM secret, and how did it go? All right, a little bit of a wind-up. I ran uh, Mechton in a campaign called the Liberty Conspiracy, which uh, ran for like 10 years among several different groups. Um, And what basically had happened is this was Mechton, which is the anime giant robot fighting game where none of my players wanted to get giant robots, which just became an anime action game with lots of drama and romance and all that stuff that makes a good anime. So that's good. Or makes some good anime. I don't want to exclude people who don't like that part. Anyway, um, the big plot was that the emperor had been replaced by one of the shape-shifting alien races responsible for the downfall of the previous intergalactic empire a millennia ago, um, which the players early on in the campaign weren't involved in it at all, had no clue. That was down the line. And it was only two groups of players later that that became important. Um, and now it became important to find out why everything they did for the Empire, which was supposed to be their ally, was coming back to haunt them. And why there were plots and clues and why some of the characters who were spies found out they were they had done things that they didn't mean to do and so on. Um, and so first they had to discover that this race of shapeshifters existed, period. Then they had to figure out that the emperor was one of them. And then they had to find a way to expose that. And so in mid-campaign, I put into the party, because they had a starship, one of the people on the starship was one of the Larini who was there to assassinate them. And uh, first bumped off a bunch of very minor NPCs in the party, so that the players got to see something was going on without taking away their favorite NPCs, and then allowed them to finally catch the the, the, the assassin. Um, which, of course, in true anime style, one of the other player characters fell in love with the shape-shifting assassin bad guy because nothing says good anime than like taking one of the bad guys and making them a good guy later on through romance. So that worked out really well. <laughs> um, then once they knew that this shapeshifter was there, they started looking for clues of other people that would have this thing because not all the shapeshifters knew who was who. And watching, I had to constantly show them the emperor talking about things and giving, and eventually kept dropping the same physical clues that the emperor was doing that clued them in that, oh my God, the emperor is a shapeshifter and he's one of the bad guys. That the main hero of this entire galaxy is the guy we've got to bump off. And, but it took a long time and I had to, it, it took lots of times. I, I'm not great at clues, so I'd toss a clue out. They wouldn't get it. Sometimes I had to be blatant about things, or I would say, you know, and, and then you all look at his hand and see X and hope that somebody in the group would remember, oh, yeah, that's a thing that the shapeshifters do with their hands kind of thing, which they did in the first couple of times because I wasn't as good as giving out clues. That wasn't a failure of my players. I've, I've never been good at, at mysteries and clues, and this was a long-time project. So, um, uh, so luckily, because this is... Mechton, so you have um, basically um, a life path at the beginning. One of the players rolled up that they were like 25th in line for the throne of the Empire through marriage and everything else. Even though he was just a pizza boy, he was actually like, so when he eventually bumped off the Emperor, it turned out that the Emperor's entire family were all shapeshifters, and the Empire now needed a ruler. We ended the campaign with that player becoming the new Emperor. Um, it went well. It took a lot of work to go through and um, several player groups because of the fact the group changed. So I had to keep giving the same clues out because it'd be two years later and 
only one of the players in the group now had been in that group two years ago when they discovered the first clue. And so it, it went on. We had a good time. But it took a lot to set up. Um, and a lot of it was by players who juggled it very well. Um, so it was a lot of fun. And, and it was kind of my clue on how to do that thing in a big, long campaign that's going to go, you know, once a month for 10 years kind of thing. So, Phil? So I've told this story before. I'll tell it from a slightly different angle. Uh, this is my corporation story about the clones. Um, so th the plot of the game was that um, the characters worked for a corporation who were on the verge of releasing this new product that was this kind of uh, mimetic me metal. Like it could take it could take different shapes when electricity was applied to it, and it had all these like technological applications and. There was another company that was also getting pretty close to releasing their version of it. And so the the actual campaign, this is the this was corporation, right? The actual um arc was about this product launch, about getting to product launch and um and getting to market before the other corporation. So the higher-ups decide they need to take this site out, um, which is when they tell the players that um, they found the rival corporation's manufacturing facility. It's like in the mountains in, in Chile. And um, they send the players first on this like little side mission to go kidnap this guy. The players don't ask any questions um, and they don't read too much into it, but they kidnap a guy who specializes in cloning. Um, and then they go to sleep that night. They're put unconscious and cloned. And then they go on the mission with all this hardware and gear to take out the manufacturing facility, which they do, but then are also left for dead um, as the manufacturing facility um, is consumed with this nanite, this disassembling nanite swarm that the players let loose. Um, and the thing about it was like the higher ups had known they were going to screw the players on but in their minds, they weren't screwing the players because they were using clones for this. Like, totally yeah. legit. It was highly illegal in the game, what they were doing. So they also didn't tell the players they were doing it, but they were like, cool, we're going to basically copy your consciousness. We're going to clone your bodies. And then we're going to like set these guys loose, but we're going to kill them and wipe all the evidence out. So we're free and clear of it. Well, um, and it was a big, the key piece that I think at least from my perspective, when this all happened was we need this facility to go down. Odds are you're probably not going to make it out. We need right. you highly skilled people to go do this, but we also don't want to lose you highly skilled assets to this corporation. That's what they tell you. That's what they told you later, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's like, we, we want these guys to go on this mission because they're like the best we've got, but we don't want to lose them. So let's clone right. them. And then when we lose the clones, we won't care. <laughs> right. So, I mean, first of all, grossly unethical, um, but that that's the whole game of corporation. Yeah. Um, but see, the thing is, the mistake is, so I did it as a player secret and it pissed everybody off in the reveal. We've talked about that before. Had I done it as a character secret, I think <clears throat> it would have been so much better. Like, I think if I had just said to you guys, like, hey, I'm going to do this thing where I'm going to give you all the toys you want to play with, but you know, it's only for a one shot and I got an idea. just go with me on this and had, you know, given you the player, like the, the character 
it created the character secret, not the player secret about the cloning and stuff. I think you guys would have been like, oh, okay, cool. One shot. We're going, you know, full out and none of us are going to make it. Yeah. I, I, I think it would have worked a lot better. I just didn't, I was doing the thing that you should never do, which was being clever. And I was doing it for the reveal. I wanted when I revealed, like, you know, as you guys were dying and then revealed when you guys woke up and found out they were clones, I wanted the, you know, um, bravo, bravo, Phil, masterful story, right? Golf clap the whole nine yards. Right. What I got was (laughs) a bunch of angry players and a bunch of middle fingers. It reminds me of that episode. There's an early Simpsons uh, where there's a um, party. Homer has a party at the house and he thinks he's been all like sophisticated and dapper Uh because, you know, drunk. But in truth, he was like this slobbering disaster and like fell on Flanders wife and all that stuff. That's like what I was doing. Like, I thought I was being like, you know, very, you know, slick and bravo, Phil, you know, bravo, bravo. You outthought yourself this time as not what happened. <laughs> oh, you outthought yourself. <laughs> oh, I, I know what I didn't do was think about any of you guys, right? Like that was all ego. Um, and that, you know, as a slight, slight side bot side as a slight soapbox, if you are GMing for ego, um, I'm going to, I, you know what? I'm on my soapbox. So I can say whatever I want. Um, if you're jamming for ego, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. If you're GMing because you're just out there to show people how smart, brilliant, creative, whatever you are, you're doing it wrong. I am, uh, I personally am of the um, servant leadership model. Uh, my job is to make sure that you all, um, we all have, we all make a great story and you all have a good time. That's my personal soapbox. You can take that with whatever mileage you want with it. Anyway, anyway, my feeling about the clone story is actually it was a pretty good plot and it would have been so much better for the players yep. had I just switched it to a character secret. I can almost gotten- guarantee all of us. I personally would have been fine with it. And I think the other two players would have been fine with it too. But player secret, it was like, what did you do? Yeah. And on the meta level, I could have just been like, cool, this is how this is my way of giving you guys everything without breaking the game. Yep. Yeah. And we could have even negotiated it because I could you guys could have been like, well, one shot's like not long enough. And I could have been like, cool, I'll pump up that story. Like I can make it I can make a small arc out of it as long as you promise to go back to like your regular gear at the end of this. Yeah. Yeah. That's my that's my big failure from a secret perspective, is I should have made it a character secret. Okay. Jerry, question number two. All right. When it comes to the characters failing or as a secret, how do you play that out as a GM or as a player? Yeah, so as a, as a player, if a character that I'm uh, embodying uh, doesn't get the secret, I just keep trucking. Mm-hmm. I pretend like I don't know it and my character don't know it and I just go because there's no reason to to let that be a bump in the road. If the GM needs that to happen... You have to trust your GM is going to be able to figure it out and let it happen. Or one of the other characters maybe will figure it out or whatever. And, you know, and it'll get disseminated through the group. But like, I just keep on trucking, <laughs> pay no attention to the man behind the curtain and just go. That's my thing. What about you, Phil? Cool. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think I'm actually not far from you on this one. I'm going to tell a story about, um, from a GMing side where, um, where a player failed a secret 
I, you know, I'll just tell the story. So we're playing D and D, third edition, third edition, and um, players are in this dungeon, and there's a trap, and it is a um, trap is a gelatinous cube maze. That is, the players enter the maze, and then um, they trigger the trap, which they fail to roll for, and uh, gelatinous cubes drop into the 10 by 10 hallways, right? So there's no escape in these things, right? They fill the entire hallway kind of thing. And so one of the players, um, our sorcerer, um, I think he was the sorcerer at the time, makes a perception check to um, look down this dark hallway to see the gelatinous cube. Now, there are rules about how hard it is to spot a gelatinous cube because they're mostly clear. And in the dark, it's actually pretty hard. And so I had, you know, I had very decent mechanic, uh, mechanical basis from which I um, set the, D- the DC for this role. So I set the DC, the player rolls it doesn't even come close like single digit rolled and i like look at the player because the player knows the player knows because i think somebody else separate like in another part of the dungeon had already gotten scooped up by a gelatinous cube the player knows there's a gelatinous cube in that darkness i know there's a gelatinous cube in this darkness there's any number of things the player could do when they fail the roll um i actually use the phrase right like you peer down the darkness and there doesn't appear to be anything there, right? I use the, use the magic word appear. Um, and to the player's credit, and this player was a pretty big min-maxer, like power gamer kind of player. That player's like, okay, I walked down the hallway because I don't know. Like, I don't know any better. So, yep. you know, did exactly what Bob just said. Like, walked yep. and walked right into that gelatinous shoe. Right into it. Like, blorp. <laughs> right in um and i mean i you know as soon as he said it i'm like okay well you walk about 20 feet down the hall and then boom you you know you get sucked into the gelatinous cube um and he lived he escaped um you know with the rest of the party's help and everything else he he got out um but it was that moment where like we all knew (laughs) like he knew i knew the rest of the table knew he had failed his role so he was you know there was a 50 50 chance when he failed his role, whether there was a gelatinous cube in there or not, but there was. Um, and uh, yep, yeah, just walked right into it. And I was on my part. And again, this is D 20. So, uh, and I will say this pretty unabashedly when it comes to D 20 games, I keep my dice behind the screen and I do when I feel like I need to, I fudge rolls because I don't think there's anything about that system that's out to protect players. So um, I had my dice behind the screen, and if I needed to, I probably would have fudged uh, some damage rolls to not dissolve him. Um, I don't think it would have been fair or fun for him to die by just failing the perception check. Um, so I didn't have to. I think he went, like he got out, and the players got him out pretty quick. But um, but yeah, that was my feeling behind it. Like I would, I would not have let him. I would not have let him die for just failing a perception check. Yeah, I was willing to hurt him though. Oh yeah. Like I was, I was willing to dissolve them a little for the failed perception check, but not all the way. Okay. That's me, Jerry. How about you? All right. For me, when I'm playing a game um, with no specific examples, if they don't get the clues or they don't have a secret, I toss in some more clues. And if they don't pick up those clues, then I'll normally have an NPC reveal to the heroes through dialogue or backstory or something along that line. Um, In a lot of my games that players tend to pick up an NPC or two along the way. And that's a good, mouthpiece to just have them notice something or ask a question. Um, don't just say, oh, by the way, guys, X, Y, and Z. It's, you know, hey, team, 
I have a question for you. Or did you notice this? Or did you think it was weird that this was there? Or you know, years ago when I was growing up in wherever, I saw something similar to that X, Y, Z. You know, give them a chance to interact with it and give them more information in through dialogue and role play interaction. Um, and then if it doesn't, then you got to hit them with the clue bat. But uh, generally, you know, toss a few more clues in, see what's up. And uh, I like the use of NPCs, just kind of lead them to the clues and, and kind of reveal it in dialogue. The idea basically being, I try to give the players a chance to discover or at least make leaps of logic. Even if I have to give them extra breadcrumbs, let them make the whole trail themselves. So go from there. Cool. Okay. Yep. All right. All right Bob. Question number three. Player GM secrets and character GM secrets. How often do you use them? So I was the one who wrote the notes. <laughs> so my answer is actually pretty close to the advice we gave. Um, it's mostly a mix. Uh, I like character GM secrets. I love them for cliffhangers, uh, dramatic moments, like things where I want to show something off screen. Like love it. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely love it. And we'll jump in and do it. Um, I will often... Um, I, I often still rely a lot on player uh, secrets. Like we're playing Knights Black Agents and there's a lot of player secrets, right? There's just yeah. a lot, there's a lot of shit I know that you guys actually probably more of its GM knowledge than secrets. Although some of it is actively trying to be concealed. Um, you are actively trying to uncover it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm operating a whole lot more um, information um, than you guys have. So, um, you know, and for Knights Black Agents, I think it actually works pretty well um, because the the real crux of that game is like assembling the clues and figuring it out. So letting you in on it, I don't think would be quite as much fun. Where for other games, like for Ox, like I'm totally fine. Um, I think we did this um, recently where some NPC was talking and then I looked at you guys and was like, he's totally lying. And yeah. you guys were all like, oh, yeah, we knew he was lying. <laughs> but like, like I, I didn't even like that one didn't even warrant a role. I was just like, he's lying. You all know this character's lying. He was the head of that um, mega corporation. Yep. Um, he was on. He couldn't be trusted anyway. So yeah, I, I like it. Um, my person. And here's my thing. My preference is. Um, I like to think of my games like movies. So I have no problem with character GM secrets because I think it's fun. I think it's. Um, I think it's fun to sometimes show the players. Show the players a scene that their characters can't see. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just, I like it. I think it's, I think it's cool. And I think it's even cooler when you get into certain genres, right? Like um, if you're running a superheroes campaign, like absolutely do it. Right. Because that's how comic books work. Like yeah. comic books are like all the pages of the comic book are all about the team. And then the last page is like, has nothing to do with the team, but is like setting up some future badness. Mm -hmm. um, I've done, I've done it in dungeon world where I've, you know, let creatures out somewhere else in the dungeon, right. And shown, you know, show that off camera kind of stuff. Like um, I think those things are fun. And when a game is like a movie and when a genre is, you know, supports it, I'm like a hundred percent for it. I love it. So I do, I mix them. I do both. Yep. Me? Um, it's going to depend a lot on the game. Uh, there are always going to be some GM secrets, but I'd like for the players to eventually have all the knowledge. As we said before, secrets are most fun when they're revealed. Um, I don't use the fly on the wall, the fly on the wall, you know, cutaway scene reveal as often. And I probably should do it more often. Um, though I, as with Phil, I think it's fun that it is a postscript, especially if they missed a clue. That's a good way to show them a clue is to have that, that postscript that 
mentions something that they may have missed so they can remember, oh, yeah, we thought about, we, we never followed that up sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I haven't used the fly on the wall or the, the, the cutaway scene uh, anywhere near as often. I think the last time I did it was in my Star Wars game just because it, it fits to have the evil bad guys, um, you know, cutting away to show the, the evil inquisitor getting into their spaceship to come look for something. And um, that can even be fun to do if it's uh, not just revealing a secret, but also a little bit of foreshadowing. So maybe set up that secret. That can be another clue for them later on down the line. Um, but uh, yeah, basically uh, throughout the game, I think it's good that you have a mix of both character secrets and GM secrets and to play them uh, a lot more. Don't feel that you need to hold them close to your close to your vest. If you think that the players are going to have more fun knowing it, reveal it. Find a way to reveal it to them so they can have fun with it. Um, not all players are good at separating player knowledge from character knowledge. And so you have to judge that within your game. Um, I do a lot less of this when I'm in like a convention where I don't know all the players. Um, especially if you have a player that you think is going to just use that knowledge to kind of ruin the game for other people. And that happens sometimes. Mm -hmm. But if you've got a good group of players who work well together and will play off things, um, and the best, of course, are the ones who will take the knowledge that they have and then play in character all the things they're going to miss to deliberately avoid revealing the secret too early because it's more fun not to know, even though the players know the characters don't. Some of them will play on that and, and avoid... Um, avoid finding things that aren't supposed to be clues that could be. And it takes all different kinds of players and you're going to know that. So you have to juggle that with, with uh, what's going on and how the players like to interact. If they're very immersive, they may enjoy just, you know, playing the dullards um, or having one person who finds all the clues and everybody else is always being oblivious to them. That can be fun for some groups. They enjoy that. And that works best if they have the secrets already so they can role play their characters more and get into all those little character flaws and personality traits that they like to do that don't come out when they're just, you know, beating goblins over the head with a stick. So, you know, so, and I'll, I'll just tack on to something you were saying. Yeah. So one of the things you can do is um, like we talked about, like the longer, like the bigger a secret is, the more times you should give the players chance to to find mm -hmm. it. The other thing you can do is, um, again, we talked about this, like discovering in the nick of time thing. You can have a sliding difficulty, right? So like early in the campaign, when you don't actually know the character too well, or you don't have too much information or, you know, anything to go on or any suspicion, you can make that difficulty for that, you know, early discovery that they're the trader kind of high, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe they earn it, you know, they nail it with a high roll and they get it. Otherwise, they're kind of oblivious. And as you get closer and closer to the point where they need to know, you can just start turning that difficulty easier and easier. There's there's no rule that says because it was, you know, an arbitrary number here, a 20 at the beginning of the campaign that it has to be a 20 at the, you know, before the climax. You can make it a seven before the climax. And, you know, if the players haven't put it together, you can just, you know, hand it up to them with a, you know, simple roll and, you know, let it happen. So you're in control of that. You're in control of when you call for roles, I mean, players can always ask to call for roles, but you can actually call for a role, you know, to present it, you know, to them at some point, and you can adjust the difficulty based on the drama of the situation. There's a, um, there's a game. Um, oh, what was it? Um, Hong Kong action theater, right? That's yeah. the name of the game. I'm thinking, right. Hong Kong action theater in a similar vein, um, NPCs hit points were based on how important they were to the plot. So 
Like if the yeah. character had no real bearing on the plot, they had no real hit points. What I mean by, and you know, if they were very important to the plot, they were very hard to defeat. And my point of this is if the plot will be better for the discovery, then ease the mechanics to make the discovery easier. Right. If the, you know, if it's not important to the plot that, you know, they discover that this guy is a traitor right now, um, leave it up, leave the difficulty up. It's fine. As long as you have a way to justify it. Right. Like you can, you can make it easier because you can say like, well, by this point, a whole bunch of inconsistencies have started to rack up. You guys are all starting Mm -hmm. to get suspicious about this guy or, oh, you're actively looking to see if this guy's, you know, lying or betraying you. Sure. No problem. Ratchet down that, you know, Mm -hmm. that thing or just present more opportunities Get up, like, you know, in the early part of the game, don't put the, you know, don't put the deception part out to where the players can see it, have that stuff working in the background. But as you get closer to a climax, start pushing that character out into the mm-hmm. foreground where the players get more and more opportunities to see yeah. something, you know, not, not line up. And by the same token, um, if you get to a point where you're like, oh my God, this would be an amazing moment for the reveal. Like this would be awesome and i think the players would all be blown away drop it just throw yeah. it in there no more yeah. roles necessary like boom the bad guy walks out from behind the curtain and it's your uncle <gasps> holy shit you know or you know or even just give them the clue without making them roll for it yeah like you know if you want them still to put it together or whatever um but yeah you can either just drop it as a full reveal or just you know don't even call for the role and be like you know, you notice that he has like, you know, um, he has, you know, this um, space ale on his desk. And like, you know, the only way to get that space ale is to have like, you know, been hanging out on that planet. You know, and then the players are like, oh, that son of a bitch. Right. Like, yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're in control. So if that's yeah. the moment, use it. Right. Cool. Cool. Cool beans. So. That was our look at GM Secrets. We hope that when you create secrets for your players, some of this advice will turn out to be helpful. All right. We're going to check in with the chat room one more time before we head on over to the conversation corner. And Genesis of Legend is in the chat room with us tonight. Jason, hello. Welcome to the party, pal. Mm-hmm. And uh, <coughs> they have an example for us. Yes, an excellent example. Um I don't know if this fit into player or GM secret. I think it's clearly a GM secret, but I had a doozy. I was running a three-year campaign of Demon the Fallen. My infernal player characters were far too trusting, and I needed to reinforce the theme of, well, untrustworthy demons. I don't blame you. I recruited a well-liked friend as a new player, air quotes, for the game, and she played along for about six sessions before revealing she was actually a traitorous antagonist. We took advantage of the social contract for drama. Well done. Oof. I mean, we talked about this last week. Some games, uh, in some games, deceit is part of the game. Yep. So demon, you know, demon being one of them, it's like kind of on the, um, you know, it's kind of in the game kind of thing. Yep. Um, it's a pretty big GM secret, actually. Like it borders on GM conspiracy, um, <laughs> which I don't think is a bad thing, right? Like, no. I think as long as... Um, as long as somewhere in your social contract, um, there is some consent for this kind of level of deception, um, then I think it's, you know, hats off and bravo. And as long as your players didn't uh, rebel when they um, when the discovery was made, then you probably had um, the correct amount of consent for this. Um, 
I could see where this could horribly backfire if you sure. weren't like if you weren't playing demon and you were playing like D and D and you did this maneuver, like there could be some angry players at the table. Yeah. Ruffle some feathers on that one. <laughs> but that is some that is some uh what you call it? that is some A game demon uh uh what you call it? That's some A game demon mentality. That's that's kind of shit I would have done for my Amber game. Yeah, he said it was a home game where he knew the players well, which is the reason why it worked out. Otherwise, it could have gone poorly. Yep. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. That's cool. That's a cool story. Yeah. That's a hell of a reveal. That is yeah. a hell of a reveal. And a nice lesson for those uh, those characters. It's like, you know, demons. Come on. Demons got a demon. I mean, it's the scorpion, right? It's the scorpion yeah. and the... Uh, scorpion um, and the frog. Yeah, scorpion yep. and the frog. Why'd you... Why'd, why'd you stab us? Scorpion. <laughs> scorpion. Come on, so no send us um send us voicing a concern there's a um uh we don't have this in our state um they're under a red flag warning uh it's very dry and extremely windy which means at any moment parts of their state can just catch fire um so she's i hope i also hope that nothing catches fire out there yes Yes. she's uh she's expressing that she's hoping nothing it's so windy that she's hoping nothing catches fire that's an anathema to people in who live in western new york because it's like it's super windy that's all it is like i hope i don't lose power um yeah but that's awesome let's open the windows up a little bit right like yeah yeah, it literally like we never catch on fire yeah um our sister um our sister town cleveland um their lake part of their lake i think caught on fire once right their river (laughs) Yeah, that was yeah, years ago. Because it that was, was that, toxic. But that didn't have that that didn't have to do with the wind. No, nope, no, nope, that didn't have to do with the wind as much as that had to do with totally just rampant different. chemical, uh, rampant <laughs> chemical dumping and the lack of a uh, EPA. Corporate um, malfeasance. Yes. 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 Corporate what? malfeasance. What That's corporations good. illegally dumping toxins into the water? Ridiculous, you say. Those guys can govern themselves just like banks. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> we can move along alright well that will bring us over to the conversation corner then kids alrighty so uh, yesterday um, I was kind of I didn't want to go to bed early I was feeling kind of tired I didn't want to read I didn't want to get on the computer and so I was just kind of sitting in front of the TV and I was flicking along to see what was on the, the, the major channels that I tend to frequent and I'm like, oh, look, the Princess Bride. And I had like missed like the first like two minutes. And I'm I mean, like, all right. You missed it on the TV. You just replayed <laughs> yeah. it in your head. <laughs> I ran through it in my head real quick and went, okay, where are we? Okay, good. That movie has lost nothing. Oh, so good. I, I don't even know how old that movie is, but I'm sure it's got to be like 20, 25, 30 years old. Like it's got to be. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like. Oh, like every single quotable line, every single like visual moment, like all of this stuff. And it was just like, yep, uh-huh, yep, yeah, uh-huh, yep. <laughs> 35 years great. old, my friend. Came out oh, in geez. 87. Yeah, so. And as I told Bob, the movie is amazing, but if you if you like to listen to books on tape, there is an unabridged reading of the actual novel that is read by... um the director, Rob Reiner, doing all of his own variations on the voices that is also almost as good as the movie. I think the movie is, is a little better than the book in this case, but it's still good. 
Yeah, that um, the, there's just so much about that movie that is just so enjoyable. And then uh, the uh, uh, total coincidence today earlier, someone reposted a link to a thread of someone watching it for the first time, where they <laughs> they're live tweeting it, and it I was remember glorious. That. It was glorious. So that was a good time. I love those reaction videos for, for classic shows. I think it's great. Andy so. Fox has done a couple of um, live action tweet uh, live action tweets. They've been mm-hmm. they've been quite enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. Oh. Send uh... <laughs> Yeah, no. Senda's kid can't tell the difference between the court jester, the princess bride, and the three musketeers. Those are three very different movies. On a, on a really good movies though. Yes. Yeah. On a good note, on a good note, it's good that your kid your kiddo know your kiddo has seen The Court Jester, The Princess Bride, and The Three Musketeers. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, also, that, that... also The Three Musketeers, the Disney Three Musketeers movie, also has not lost anything over time. No, no, no not at all. So good. It has been a while since I've seen The Court Jester. I'm sure The Court Jester hasn't lost anything, even though it's still kind of dated because yeah. you know it's been a while, but a brilliant movie. Way more dated than uh, than the other two, but yeah. I mean, I guess that is one hell of a triple feature, man. I would, I yeah. would, I would Sit do that as it? a watch party. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I think the thing for me is the reason I can tell the difference between the Court Jester, the Princess Bride, and Three Musketeers. I mean, obviously, besides I'm old, is that the Court Jester was a movie that I saw only because it was like a rerun. The Princess Bride, I saw. Um, I know exactly where I was the day I saw the princess bride. Right. Like I know I, like I can remember being in high school and I remember being in college when the three musketeers came out. Right. Like I have chronological memories of myself, Yeah, which it's not that I, it, you know, I mean, sometimes I remember songs or whatever, not so much because of um, the, you know, actual song or the movie or whatever, but I remember me like which version of me was that. Yeah. Is it the, the one that the, wore the black T-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ah. Well, the thing about the court jester for those people in, in, in the Buffalo area was that it was on PBS and UHF all the freaking time. I mean, it was on probably twice a year here for a long, long time. Danny K movies especially were really big. And um, one of the local stations, I don't remember if it was NBC or CBS, used to always have the afternoon show. And I've talked before they yeah. did like on Tuesdays was the creature feature and, but they used to show a ton of those swashbuckler movies. You know, Tony yeah. Curtis, the black shield of Fallsworth and the Prince who was a thief and all the Danny K movies Crimson and pirate Crimson pirate. Those were on all the time and they just would show them again and again and again because they got them cheap. And yeah. so, and, and that was not a bad thing. It was great to watch though. You know, you'd, you'd be sitting around and, you know, star blazers was over. Now what's on? Oh, look, it's Danny K sword. Wheel fight. of yeah. fish. Wheel of Fish was on. <laughs> That's a different UHF. Red Snappa. <laughs> yes. Oh, that, all right. uh, so all that being said, that was yes. that was my. That's uh, a UHF that reference thing. for uh, yep. for you youngins out there. Go yeah. look that up. Uh, you won't be disappointed. In addition to to that, um, we had our D and D game on Friday night, which was very cool. Uh, our Knights Black Agents game this past Sunday, which uh, was good. We had a, a an extended break. Um, for that one, we had missed a, a session or two, so we got to jump back into that. Um, Picard last week was very good. Moon Knight dropped this week, uh, this past week, which the first episode of Moon Knight I thought was was brilliant. 
Um, and I'm now into uh, season three of Shit's Creek. And without going into too much more detail for my segment, Shit's Creek is one of those shows where you start watching and you're like, ah, you know, I see where they're going. You know, it's a comedy. You know, da, da, da. but three seasons in now, you can see they're doing a, such a good job of the evolution of these four spoiled wealthy people with no attachment to reality and how real people have to live who get thrown into this situation and a start to cope b learn about like other people and like real human beings who have to like deal with poverty and and stuff and start learning more about themselves and actually grow as human beings and i'm just watching all of this stuff and i'm like well done well done golf clap so the very that's funny show it's a very good show cherry all right well my one thing is going to be our friday dnd game um it was a lot of fun it was interesting um our gm chris told us going into the opening scene that um like this was gonna we, we kind of came into a situation and made a res we 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 had had a previous breakdown and this was not like you, you're like you're in the middle of this as you're walking across the quad you turn around and you're surrounded by a bunch of cobalt ninjas and um also let us know like and they are cranking out everything um to let us know as players like this was not the time to reserve your abilities this was going to be the encounter before you get a long rest so don't pull your punches which we kind of did the first couple rounds we didn't quite get a get a grip on the fact that this was not just a bunch of minor kobolds. These were, you know, a tough, tough group. Matter of fact, we didn't kill any of them. Luckily, they didn't kill any of us completely. Um, and it was it was a war of attrition as we went. Um, but it was fun. And then from there, we went into a heavy investigative game. So we went from uh, combat to investigation, um, running around zombies. It, just, it played well, and it was well-paced. And I think it was fun to see that um as much as some people like to rank on mechanical games like D, it's still this fifth edition it was still fun to you could still do a combat encounter a heavy role-playing encounter a lot of um exploratory stuff some investigative stuff all in the same campaign in the same session no less and uh, kind of led us to an idea that we are dealing with something bigger than just what we started with we've, we've known right off the bat that there was this witch that was going to be one of the major antagonists but as each story goes on we get another piece another clue um of what the bigger picture is and that it's not just this one situation and we also know that the theme for our entire campaign is legacy the things that happen um you know generations down the line and each piece of the mystery has to deal with another legacy or something else from past history. So it's fun that we get to explore the history of this world as it goes as well. This is a lot of fun. It's, it's using a lot of modern role-playing and some storytelling game stuff in a D&D game. And being that it's Christmas, is probably not a surprise to anybody. So um, for everything else, I'm still plugging my way through Justified, just finished season two. Um, we played Knights Back Agents, which uh, Bob already kind of summarized. It was a lot of fun. Um, again, more investigative stuff and figuring out that we're We've got a lot of puzzle pieces to put together, and we're getting them piece by piece, which is fun. Um, Picard was just excellent. Moon Knight was so much fun. Um, and uh, I discovered a couple other things. I, I got back into watching BattleBots, which I always love BattleBots. 
as a fan of Car Wars, anytime you're watching machines beat the crap out of each other. Um, real quick, when I was living in my old house in Auburn, um, I got really sick for two days. It was basically more or less too weak to get out of bed. And I just happened to be at the end of one season of BattleBots where they just ran every episode for the season back to back. So I got to watch a lot of it when I was a couple of years ago. So I know some of these bots by, like they mentioned, oh, it's, you know, you know, Whiplash. Like, oh, I remember that guy, whatever. So it's a lot of fun. If you enjoyed Car Wars or you want to watch um, a slugfest match where nobody actually gets hurt, like boxing and martial arts, people actually get hurt. This nobody gets hurt. It's just robots. So until the AIs take over, then we got to be careful. Um, and uh, last two things, uh, there's a show called Outlaws that just started on Amazon that is um, Christopher Walken and Stephen Merchant in kind of a dramedy about a bunch of criminals who end up having to work community service and begin to put their skills together when they discover a bag full of millions of pounds. And it's it is written and created by Stephen Merchant, so it's got that kind of office-level dry humor in it. It's a lot of fun. And lastly, uh, I watched Midsummer which is a um, cheerful light. Um... It actually is for the first two thirds of it. It's not like hereditary, which is his other movie. Um, this is a, a horror movie starring um, Florence Pugh and um, Will, Will Poulter. And I can't remember the actor's name, but he played Chidi in the good place. Mm, okay. Um, kind of playing the same character, um, uh, similar character. And it's about, kind of finding if, if, if you ever want to see a movie that has a different take on how cults are run midsummer is really interesting it's also about uh trauma and loss but the entire movie takes place during the midsummer so it's very bright and sunny and lots of really vibrant colors and lots of cheerful people and some of them die <laughs> and that's all i'll say i don't want to ruin it it's worth seeing um if you see this other movie hereditary which is basically all dark and dreary this is the opposite of that. It just has to be a horror movie. Plus, if you want to see Florence Pugh do some cool stuff that isn't just running around kicking Russian spies, it's a cool movie. So, all right, that's my take on my everything else, Phil. Uh yeah, my um, oh, let's see, my main thing is going to be um that I finished reading, um, I finished reading the Gibson novel that I had started, which was uh, Agency, um. I'm a huge fan of Gibson, so everything I say about Gibson is, um, uh, what you call it, grossly biased. Um, but I really like this. Um, I really like the series, the Jackpot series. Um, I believe the third book is going to be called Jackpot, um, but Gibson always writes in um, in trios, right? So he always writes these um, three book arcs. Um, this one's really good. I don't want to say anything about it because um, the peripheral is coming up as an Amazon show. The peripheral, the book is excellent. Um, this was a great second book to that. Um, in Gibson's way, does this very great job of telling these like really cool stories. And some stories are really big and some stories are like really small. Uh, and he's a really good knack of, of doing both. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But the thing that I'm really proud of um, personally is that is the first novel I have read since lockdown. Uh, I got that book for Christmas in 2019. In 2020, it was sitting on my desk. And um, sometime in February 2020, I was like, cool, I guess I'll start reading this. And then lockdown hit. Um, my mental health went into um, into the dumpster. And uh, I think, you know, if you've been listening to the show, I, I, I for a while had concentration problems and uh, between anxiety and depression and a number of things going on um, 
all sorts of life things going on over the last uh, two years, I um, kept trying to read that book, kept failing to read that book and putting it back um, on my pile as the next book I would read. Um, and it is, was only in the last month that I was able to pick that book up and actually finish it. And I actually finished it last week after the show. I read like the last part of it in two hours. I just sat on the couch and was like, nope, I guess I'm finishing this book tonight. Um, so um, it is. it was both a treat to get to finish a Gibson book which I was ecstatic to get finished. And it was um, a sign for me that um, maybe things are getting better. Uh, I had enough concentration and such to make it through that book. And, um, and I actually picked up another book. I'll talk about it in a minute. Uh, other stuff. Um, I started watching Halo on Paramount with my son. I don't know enough about the Halo universe to know um, if this is um, close or not close. It's fun enough. But my son wanted to watch it, so I was like, of course I'm in. Uh, I watched uh, Starship, Starship Troopers over the weekend. I'm going to talk about that in the after show. Um, played some No Man's Sky. We played Knights Black Agents. Uh, I finished up season one of SEAL Team 6 and started season two, uh, where the writers were just like, hey, guess we're just going to up the ante on some of the drama in this show. Um, and they did. Uh, I started a new novel because I finished agency uh, Gideon the ninth, which um, I know Senda will be excited about because uh, she also bought me that book. Uh, Senda and I had our long live the queen game uh, that went really well um, that we have now finished our, um, we are finished with the stuff that we had originally written for fate and written for conventions. And I actually just this week started writing the long live the queen material that's now for the first time made for Cortex Prime. Uh, and it's good. Like, I'm very pleased. Uh, I also watched Moon Knight. I'm, um, I was never a huge Moon Knight fan. So I'm still on the fence on this one. I'm, uh, I watched it. I thought it was interesting. Um, I don't know. I have to see some more. Not, I'm not over the moon for it like I've been for some of the other shows. But it's Marvel. And I will never <clears> scoff <throat> a Marvel product. I will always... Marvel's earned enough credit that I will uh, I will take the ride um, and I'll make my decision afterwards. But for so far, I thought it was pretty interesting opening, but I, I, it hasn't really connected with me yet. So I'm waiting. We got a couple more episodes before I'm before I'm concerned about it. Plus, you know, it takes a couple episodes before it gets to the hook, right? So mm -hmm. it's funny because I have never actually read a Moon Knight comic book. I know about the character. I know the, the gist of like who he is and, and how he operates and whatnot, but I've never read a comic book with him. <laughs> yeah, I, me neither. I, I read a bunch of the the 80s, 90s, the 70s, 80s run. I don't remember when he came out. Um, and then um, he had a stint in West Coast Avengers um, back really? before. Oh, yeah, he was he was he had a stint in West Coast Avengers uh, just before Byrne came in and wrecked everything. When they, when they were still a team that was growing and doing stuff, there was a whole thing with the, when the Zodiac was their main villain and he was upset because um, one of the leaders of the Zodiac made, a, made a, a promise on the moon not to do stuff and then went back on it. So Moonlight had the Avengers basically uh, kind of putting a, a vengeance attack on the, on the Zodiac, which was a, a neat storyline. And he's been in a couple other things. He's, uh, he also appeared in the remake of Marvel Team-Up when it was... Uh, a couple of years ago, they did a, a limited series that was Marvel Team Up, where every story led into the next one until they had a whole 
story arc for the whole thing. And he was in part of it with with his sidekick Frenchie and um, uh, where the where the the ringmaster gets a hold of the cosmic cube and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, the ringmaster puts the co- turns the cosmic cube into a ring, uses it to mess with everybody, and then Punisher just shoots the shoots his finger off from a distance. So, because he's As Punisher, you do. <laughs> yeah, um, it's actually a really good run. Um, that that limited Marvel team up series, but it gives you some it gives you also some more input into who Moon Knight is. So. Um, and just like all Marvel characters, Moon Knight hasn't been consistent for all this time either. No. So um, I could see bits and pieces of stuff. This is uh, not the same character I've read about in any of the comics completely. They've done some changes, but I'm on board. I'm like, like you said, we're going to riot till it goes. But um, yep. just watching Oscar Isaac play multiple characters is always a fun thing. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that will uh, wrap up that. And it's time for our Patreon shoutouts, kids. So thank you so much to friend of ours, Glenn Seiler, Jason Pitt. Well, look at that. Gene Lorbear, Jeff Stevens, Joe Rasso, John, M.T. Black, Mike Olson, Padme's Lover, Robert Dorgan, Ryan Bolter, and Troy Pitchelman. And thanks to everyone for listening tonight. Indeed, indeed. If you are free on Tuesday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. the Queen's time, you're welcome. Come join us live on Twitch where you can chat with the other listeners in the chat room for life and ask us the occasional question. That makes a live show. Check out our podcast each week wherever you get your podcasts. And take a listen to some of the other shows in the Mr. Mark Network, such as They're a Super Geek, Mastering Dungeons, Bonestone Obsidian, The FM Gamers, Padme's Talking, or Panda's Talking Games. <laughs> Let me say that again. Panda's Talking Games, The Gnomecast, Shagu Hustle, The Lounge, Bonus Experience, and the amazing back episodes of She's a Super Geek. Seriously, check those out, too. You can and should check out our sibling podcast, Tabletop Bellhop, Tonight's the Night, and the always amazing Gaming MBS. On Padme's Talking talking Games, Padme and Jar Jar talk about the latest tabletop role-playing games and a little bit of humor. Misa loves this die mechanic. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh. All right. Uh, before you <laughs> let your players discover the secret in the nick of time, leave us some feedback. Reach us directly on the old-fashioned emails. By the way, we're Gen Xers. We love email, by the way. Um, it is our preferred communication method. You can hit us up at mmp at misdirectedmark.com. Check us out on Twitter. The show in the network is at misdirectedmark. He's Robert M. Everson. He's GM Gerrymander. I'm DNA Phil. If you like what we do here and on the other shows in the Misdirected Mark network, you can support our Patreon campaigns. This show, Mastering Dungeons, and Padme's Talking Games are all at patreon.com slash mmp. Zhangu Hustle is at patreon.com slash Zhangu Hustle. And bonus experiences at patreon.com slash bonus experience. Patrons of MMP, Mastering Dungeons, and Pandas Talking Games get access to the after show, pre-production show notes, musical parodies, the Bamboo Lounge, and other special releases. This has been a Mr. Mark production. The media arm of Encoded Designs. Mic drop. We out.